listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to be back with you. Got stranded in the great Republic of Texas, which if you're going to get stranded anywhere, the Republic of Texas is the place to get stranded because of American, aka Soviet Union Airlines. Uh, But got to go to Six Flags, so it was all good. Um, But it's good to be back with you. Uh, This kind of short week, but it's uh, just missed the, the humidity of the South. It was 109 in Arlington when we were at Six Flags, by the way, 109. Some of you are like, is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. Move to Texas, it's possible. But, uh, but it's good to be back. We are gonna do something a little bit different today. We're in a kind of summer series, taking a break from Matthew. Um, so uh, if you're a guest, this is a little bit different than what we usually do, but our job is to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so uh, this summer, we're trying to do, hit some things that are equipping in nature, and so that's where we're going today. Sometimes... We get the what in life without the why, right? Uh, there's no explanation. It's just a what. So there's this great scene in one of my favorite movies, uh, The Hunt for Red October. And so Sean Connery's looking through the periscope and he's talking to the Americans. He's a Russian in this movie, not Scottish. Uh, he's talking to the, uh, the Americans and, and he looks at his number two in command, the guy from Jurassic Park. And he says, give me one ping, Vasily. One ping only, please. And Vasily doesn't know what's going on, right? He's, he, he doesn't get to see through the periscope. And so he just gets the instruction. He's like, Captain, I don't understand. He's like, just one, just with gentlest son Connor. He's like, just one ping with a horrible Russian accent. One ping only, Vasily, right? Because he doesn't know the why. He doesn't know all that's going on in the periscope. He just has the what. And sometimes in life, that's all we get, right? We get this as parents and it's okay, do this, be home by 11. Why? Because you live in my house, eat my food, drive my car under my cell phone bill, right? We could go there, but sometimes we just say, because I said so, and that's okay. But other times, the why behind it is powerful, right? When we, when we get the what with the why, it gives us confidence. Oh, I get it. And it gives us more motivation to believe and do the what, And the church has been notoriously bad over history with the whys. We've been very good with the what's. Do this, do this. Why? I don't know. That's because my father said it and his father and the pastor said it. And so sometimes the why is necessary so that we understand and so that there's more motivation and more drive to do the what. And what I want to deal with today is I want to deal with a why uh, dealing with the what we talked about a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I t- we talked about Romans 12, one and two, that God desires not for us just to be informed, but that he wants us to be transformed. Right? Information is necessary, but transformation is essential. And we saw that Romans 12, two says that we are transformed, how? By the renewing of our mind, that we take this book and we renew our minds with this book. That's how it happens, right? And so that's the what, but sometimes we don't know the why. Why behind that, right? Because Paul tells us the result, the result of being renewed in your mind is what? That which is pleasing and acceptable and perfect, you'll discern the will of God. And, and you need to understand that in our world today, especially, God's word has been attacked since the very beginning. Genesis 3, did God really say, okay? So it's always been under attack, but now more than ever, and, and everything the world says is directly in opposition to what this says, It is. 
right? So the world would say, what's pleasing and good and perfect? Whatever you decide. (laughs) You decide what's good and perfect and acceptable. But this book says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not, do not, whatever you can do, do not lean on your own understanding. Those two things are complete polar opposites. The world says, just follow your heart. Yes, I know he's cute and doesn't have a job and wears skinny jeans. Just follow your heart. This book says, guard your heart. Don't follow your heart, guard your heart. The heart has all sorts of wickedness in it. It's deceitful above all else. And so what God says is renew your mind with this so you'll know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that's the what. But I wanna talk about the why behind it a little bit tonight, today. Not tonight, I'm still on West Coast time, right? Why, what is the why behind it? Because Christians don't know why. We say, that's God's word says it. And when you're faced with someone who says, how do you know it's God's word? Bill said so, right? And I want you... Now more than ever, Peter says that you have to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is within you. Not with arrogance, with gentleness and reverence. But you need to have a defense. An apologia is the Greek. We get our word apologetics from it. You need to have a reason why you believe this is God's word. And so what I want to do today, very simply, I'll talk about why we know it's true. And then even, even more deep diving, I want to talk about how do we know that, okay, if, the, if, this, if scripture is true, how do we know what is scripture? And then once we decide what scripture is, how do we know the words of scripture? Even the words are true because it's been thousands of years since this book was written, thousands of years, right? So how, how can we know these things? And the goal here is this, it's so that you and I can have confidence that the what of renewing our mind with scripture is what God wants us to do and it's powerful, and it works and it transforms us to be more like Jesus. That's, that's the goal, all right? So we're gonna start in 2 Timothy. We're gonna be a little all over. You might just wanna watch the slides uh, and, and, and take some notes and write some things down. Today is not gonna be a sermon, okay? Today's more of a classroom, okay? So normally preach, preach through books of the Bible, but today is a little bit of a classroom feel and next week's gonna be even more so. Next week, I want you to bring a notebook, a pencil or a pen, or if it's your iPad, I'm gonna have a whiteboard on the stage, a whiteboard on the stage with dry erase markers. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do some things next week, but, but a little bit more class feel. So if you're like, I don't gonna get this, this is not the norm, but I think it's important for us. So 2 Timothy says this, and this is where we're gonna look. How do we know it's true? How do we know the books we have are true? How do we know the words we have are true? That's the why behind the what. So here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he starts out saying all scripture, all graphe, the word is writings. All writings, all scripture, and whatever scripture is, and we'll come to that to the next question, whatever it is, all of it, circle all, All of it is breathed out by God. Some of your translations say inspired by God. It's the word theonoustos, God breathed. It's the breath of God. It's the the words of God. Paul says it's the mind of Christ. That all scripture, whatever that is, is breathed out. It is his very words that men composed and wrote down on wood, papyri, stone, all sorts of things, right? That, that's what it is. It's, it's the words of God. And I think some of us have a little misconception about how we got our Bible. 
We think that God kind of sat down and said, okay, Paul, write. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna speak, you write. Moses, just write what I say. God's, God, so, God so loved, did you catch, the world. It's called dictation theory. That's not how we got our Bible. God did not sit down and say, okay, Paul, write this down. In a few places, he said that in the Old Testament. But for the most part, what Peter teaches us, he affirms, is that men were moved by the Holy Spirit as they were carried along by, men were moved by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? He says, know this first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Paul didn't sit down one day and say, I'm gonna write a book of the Bible this week. I think I'll call it Titus. It's a good name. Ephesians, right? That's not how it worked because no prophecy was produced by the will of men. Men spoke from God, that's important, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes upon a person in such a way that they write down God's breathed out words on papyri, paper, stone, whatever. This is what Acts 4 says, that, that David spoke by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes one of the Psalms, that the Holy Spirit is moving. And here's the beauty of that. When God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon a person when they wrote scripture, he didn't like make them in robots. Like they're, okay, God says this, God says this. It wasn't some like rote thing. He actually takes their personalities and their experience and their life and that comes across in their writing so that Paul and Peter write in completely two different ways. Like their education and everything, their personality comes out in their writings. God doesn't just kind of like superimpose over them so that they just become robots. Their personalities are still used because God wired them this way and educated them this way, but yet it comes out as God's perfect word. So when you read in the original languages, for instance, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark is the easiest Greek in the New Testament. In fact, it's what you study first couple semesters in Greek and and seminary. They take you to Mark because they really want to encourage you and make you feel good because it reads like this. Spot ran up the hill. The hill was big, big hill, big, big hill. And you walk out of class thinking, I know Greek, I'm crying. And then they take you to Luke and you're like, I don't know what this, I have no clue what this is saying. Because Luke is super intelligent. He's a doctor. He's very meticulous with his language. He uses big words that aren't used anywhere else. And so it's very complex because he's a different person than Mark. But yet God is using them both to communicate his words without error, his revelation to man. Why? Because God wants us to know his heart and he wants us to renew our minds with scripture, right? It is God speaking. And here's here's ultimately why we know this is true. It's true because who's the source? God. Can God lie? Yes or no? That didn't sound very convincing to some of you. Can God lie? Okay, so God cannot lie. If the scripture is sourced in God, then that means, is it, can it be untrue? No. It is true because it's sourced in God. It's not just true because it says it's true. It, is, it does say it's true, but it's true because it's from the mouth of God himself. Its source is God, period. And the beauty of the scripture, you have 66 books written over 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages by, by all sorts of different characters, shepherds and prophets and kings and doctors and fishermen. And all these individuals all write about the same thing and they agree. They agree. Y'all, if you're a Georgia fan, you cannot even agree who your starting quarterback should be this year, even though you won a national championship. True or false? True. 
These people live 1,500 years apart, different places, different, and they're all talking about the same thing and they agree. It's a miracle. Why? Because it's sourced in God, which is why Hebrews says the word of God, this is living and active. It's the only supernatural book. It is super, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the soul. It cuts to the heart. It can renew you. It can transform you. It makes you more like Jesus. And this is, by the way, Jesus's view of the scripture, right? I don't even have time to unpack it, but John 10, Jesus says, the scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 5, we looked at it in the Sermon on the Mount, that it will be fulfilled down to the last stroke, the smallest letter. Everything will be accomplished. That's how he viewed the scripture, whatever the scripture is. And we'll come to that in a minute. And here's, here's why this is vital and we'll move on. Because there's a misconception that I hear all the time, people saying and reading in blogs and everything, that, well, Jesus never said anything about this. I mean, I know Paul says this and Moses says this, but Jesus never addressed that. That's a faulty view of inspiration. Who was behind Moses? The Spirit. Who was behind Paul? The Spirit. Who was behind Peter? The Spirit. Who was behind David? The Spirit. Who was behind James? The Spirit. Who was behind everything Jesus said or did? The Spirit. The source is the same. So it doesn't matter if Peter said it, Paul said it, Jesus said it, Moses said it. It's all true because it's sourced in God, the Holy Spirit. Right? It's true. It can be trusted. And it's to renew your mind and make you more like Christ. Right? That's why we renew. He perfectly, not completely, we don't know everything, but he perfectly, sufficiently revealed his heart, his revelation, because he wants us to know his heart. He wants to instruct us. He wants to transform us to be like him. So the question is this then, if all scripture is from God, then what contains all scripture? I mean, how do we know what is scripture and what is not? Right? That's a great question. What is all scripture? Because I've seen some movies with Tom Hanks running around and there's, there's like Catholic assassins trying to kill him because there's other books of the Bible that are supposedly in here. So how do we know what's supposed to be in here and what's not supposed to be in here? This is what we call canonicity. If you heard that word, maybe some of you, the canon of scripture. It's not talking about the gun. We're gonna shoot people with the canon of scripture and blow them away with, for Jesus, right? That's not, canon just means rule or rod or measuring rule. It's the, what's the rule of what gets in and what gets out? And, and this is weeks of seminary. Let me give it to you in like eight minutes, okay? High level, 40,000 feet. Old Testament, 39 books. New Testament, 27 books. How do we know we have the right Old Testament? How do we know how you have the New, the New Testament? The Old Testament's easy. Just ask one question. What, what Old Testament scriptures did Jesus read? Right? And he read the ones we have. Well, now it's 39 books. For them, it wasn't. For the Jewish, uh, so Jewish people and, and when Jesus was living, they broke the scriptures into three main parts. You had the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. You had the prophets, which was all the prophets, but also some of the historical books, First Kings, uh, and then you had the writings or the Psalms, which was all the poetry, but also Ezra, Nehemiah, and a couple other books. That's how they broke it down. First book was Genesis. Last book for them was Second Chronicles, which is uh, what Jesus affirms in Luke 24. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. There's their three-part division. He says the same thing in Matthew 23. You have to write these down quick or you can come to me later because we got to move. Um, he talks about the, the blood of Abel, the first martyr in the Bible in Genesis. And he talks about the blood of Zechariah, the last martyr of the Bible found in the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible, Second, Corinthians, Second Chronicles. And he's just affirming the Old Testament canon. Point is this, 
Jesus affirmed the 39 books we have. That's what they used, right? And the only real debate about this is, this, is the Apocrypha. Some of you have heard of the Apocrypha. Some of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's really the only debate. Should the Apocrypha be in? Here's why it shouldn't. Number one, Jesus didn't use it. It's real, real simple. Even the non-believing Jews, the non-Christian Old Testament Jews did not affirm the Apocrypha. Uh, you can read all sorts of extra biblical history that that's true. Number two, uh, it's not quoted anywhere in the Bible. Almost every other Old Testament book is either quoted or, or alluded to in the New Testament. Never once the Apocrypha. Never once. So the story of the dragon, you know, you got a dragon Lord of the Rings story in there, so Santa and the dragon, or Bell and the dragon, you got all these other places, Maccabees, right? They're never quoted, but they quote Jonah and they quote Zechariah and they quote all the other books, right? Um, and then thirdly, there's just historical and theological errors in the Apocrypha. Where do you think they get praying for the dead? The Apocrypha. Where do you get the doctrine of purgatory? Not in the Bible, it's in the Apocrypha, right? And so all sorts of reasons, but those are the big ones. Jesus used the 39 books we have, very clear. And even Jerome, by the way, who translated the Greek Bible into Latin for the Roman church, doubted the authenticity of the Apocrypha. And he said, this is not on par with scripture. Even he, who translated it, right? So it's been doubted. It wasn't even affirmed until the Council of Trent, like in 1600, the 16th century. So, uh, so the Apocrypha is easy. The question is the New Testament. How do we know the 27 books of the New Testament are the ones that we should be reading? That's a better question, right? That's a better question. And let me give you, there's no five rules of canonicity of the New Testament. There's no, you know, because some of you have heard, yeah, there's a bunch of dudes in like the third century, they put on a bunch of funny hats and they voted on which books to go in right? That's kind of the myth you've been told, right? There were councils, Laodicea and Hippo and Carthage, and they did affirm the canon, but they didn't decide the canon. What they did was they recognized the books that God had made authoritative. They weren't voting. They were publicly recognizing the books that God had already made clear were supposed to be in there. And there were several different things that went into that. A couple, here's a couple of them. Number one, had to be tied or written by an apostle, if an apostle wrote it, these were the authority of the early church, Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, Jesus being the cornerstone. First Thessalonians, that, that they accepted the, the apostles' word as the word of God. Why? These are the authority of the early church. And so almost every one of the New Testament books was written by who? An apostle, except for three. Mark, Luke, oh, no, four. Jude, and the, and the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is. All the rest of Paul, Peter, James, John, Matthew, all apostles. But even the ones that weren't written by apostles were tied closely to apostle. Mark, who was Mark tied to? Peter, that was his boy. Luke, he was tied to Paul. They went on all these missionary journeys together. Jude, well, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He, he kind of knows something about Jesus, right? And then writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, is closely tied to the apostles. He knows the apostles and that was the only one that was really debated for a little bit, but even then they recognized it. So there's a tie to the authority of the apostles. Number two, there's unity with other books. There's continuity. They say the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. See, some of these gospels of Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of, of Bar Barnabas and the letters to Obi-Wan and all these other books that they talk about, there's, there's errors and there's contradictions. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas, supposedly written by the Apostle Thomas. Problem is, it was written like 150, 175 AD. That's 150 years after Thomas is dead. So whoever wrote it lied right up front from Thomas. Lie. So it can't be true because he already lied. Not to mention, he says things like this in his Gospel. Let me read a quote. Peter, 
he's supposedly quoting Peter who says, women are not worthy of life. Okay, that's very nice of you, Peter. Uh, Jesus responds by making women into men so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like the scripture? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like uh, that male and female created in the image of God, does it? Right, it's, it's a, it sounds very Gnostic is what it is. Third century Gnosticism, which is what they were writing about in those days. And so there's clear errors in these books, not to mention just flat out lies from Thomas, from Barnabas, even though they're dated way later. And then there's other, other things they look for. Does, does, uh, is there a self-attesting nature to this? Does it seem like it's from the spirit of God? How many of you have ever read the Book of Mormon? Any of you? A few of you? How many of you have ever read parts of the Quran? It's just, it's different. It's just different. It makes no sense. It's all over the place. There's a self-attesting nature to the scriptures that God is speaking. This is why it's living and active. And the early church recognized it. This is from God. This is from God. Even other New Testament books attested to other New Testament books. You know that? Do you know that Peter, when he's writing in 60-ish AD, already calls Paul's letters scripture? So 2 Peter says this. I love this about Peter. He's so blunt. You love him. He says, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks to them of these matters. And there are some things then that are hard to understand. Isn't that great of Peter saying, Paul's a little heady sometimes, isn't he, y'all? Don't get him sometimes, I know. But look what he says. He says, the ignorant and unstable, they twist Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do what? The other scripture. What's he saying? That Paul's writings are scripture. Early, this is 60 AD. Already they're recognizing scripture. And this is what Paul does for Luke. So 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes the Old Testament, calling it scripture, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox. And then he quotes the gospel of Luke. The laborer deserves his wages. These are, this is not, that, that verse is not in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament, that's in Luke. And he is calling Luke's gospel what? Scripture. And so the early church recognized these things and they put these things, uh, recognize these things in the canon of scripture. And that's not to count just the early church fathers. The church fathers are those guys that came after the apostles, Irenaeus, Polycarp, just read them. They were already affirming what we have as a New Testament canon. By 170 AD, they had a complete list except for three books, Hebrews, James, and 3 John, which soon after were recognized as part of the canon. Because God wants to preserve his word. Does God want you to know him, yes or no? Yes. And so God preserved his word supernaturally so that you have the right books in your Bible. This is why, you know that Paul wrote multiple letters to other churches that we don't have. He wrote at least three, maybe four letters to Corinth, right? We don't have a third Corinthians. We don't have a fourth Corinthians. Why? Because they weren't part of scripture. Doesn't mean they weren't true. Doesn't mean they weren't helpful for that church, but, but they're not part of the canon. God preserved his word. So why? So you would know him and so that your mind could be renewed and you could be made more like Christ. So it's true because it's sourced in him. We know we have the right books, but here's the big question then. How do we know the books have the right words? I mean, it wasn't, but despite what some of you may have been taught growing up, Paul did not write the King James Version. I know, I know that's a shock to some of you. All right. Uh, it's been thousands of years, even more than thousands for like the Pentateuch, for Moses and David. So how do we know we have the right words? Right? How do we know it's accurate? 
Because some of you, look, younger folks, you're going to go off to college and there's going to be a, a guy standing in front of you with a PhD from someplace and he's going to tell you as a Christian, I bet you didn't know that we have, do you know how many copies of the original, you know how many of Paul's original letters we have? Do you know how many copies? We have zero originals. None. And did you know I'm going to tell you something that you won't hear in the church because we're scared of this, but I'm going to unpack it for you. So don't walk out on me now and be like, oh, I can't believe Bill said that. Give me 15 minutes. But in the manuscripts that we have, all these manuscripts of the Old Testament, New Testament, there is differences in some of them. Did you know that? And see, some of you are going to hear that when you go off to college and your faith is going to be shaken because they're going to throw that out there and they're going to give you this fact. There's over 200,000 differences and you're going to be like, everything I've heard is a lie. And what I want you to know, that's a shock value statement. I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. And you'll be like, oh, I get it now. Right? Because what the enemy wants is you not to trust this. Because he knows there's power here. So let me unpack that for you. Let me, let me, this is why the why behind the what is important. Okay? Um, and so let's talk about how, how, if, if there's manuscript differences, then how do we know what the original said? Let me frame it this way. So movie, remember the movie National Treasure? Benjamin Gates steals the Declaration of Independence, right? What if he steals the Declaration of Independence and then, oops, I lost it. All right, no more original Declaration of Independence. And then someone comes along and, and, and puts some, some fraudulent ones out there that say, we hold these truths not to be self-evident, that all men were not created equal and they put all these fake ones out there. And so now you got a mixture. There's differences. How do you know what the original said? Because you have so many copies that it's so clear what the original is and what the fakes are or what the mistakes are. And the same is true with scripture. We have so much evidence that it's, it's easy to identify what the original said. In fact, in antiquity, you have all these, you know, these old books like Homer and Plato and Iliad and Odyssey. And we talk about all those things. Okay, compared to them, the number of manuscripts we have from scripture, from all those other things, it doesn't compare. The number two on the list is Homer, written 900 BC, long time ago. You know how many manuscripts we have of Homer in existence? About 600, 600, that's a lot, that's a ton. You know how many we have of the scripture? 25,000 plus and we're discovering more and more every year. In fact, one of my seminary professors used to go off to all these monasteries in the summers and, and they would discover new manuscripts every year. They're constantly finding. When it comes to the, this, the number of evidence, it's, it's overwhelming in favor of the scripture. And here's why they have all these manuscripts and some of them differ. Let me explain this to you, okay? Remember, up until 1450 AD, how did every book get written? by hand until you got, you know, Xerox, Mr. Xerox in, in 1450 created the copy machine, right? And from that point on, we had the printing press and now we had books that could be printed. But up until that point, everything was handwritten. And so you can imagine, just picture yourself, you've been working as a scribe for seven hours and you just no coffee, the coffee machine's empty and it's late and you have a little flicker of a candle and you're not working with a gel pen, you're working with a, you know, something else and it's dark and you're tired and this is what you're copying, Okay, this is P46, Papyri 46, the Chester BD. It's a very important document, but look at that. This is what you're copying. No spaces, all caps, no, no commas, 
No verse number 16. This is what they would copy for seven, eight hours a day. Once in a while, what if the guy before you had horrible handwriting? He didn't go to Mrs. McGillicuddy's first grade class and learn cursive. His handwriting was train wreck. And so is that a Y or is that a Q? I, I can't tell. And so what they would do is they would just copy what they saw and they wouldn't necessarily be reading words. They'd just be copying letters. And so if the guy before them made a mistake, guess what? Now his, his copy has a mistake too. But again, because we have so many, it's evident to see, right? So that's what was going on, right? And so we have 200, 300,000 of these little disagreements, but most of them, 99% of them are like the switching of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, a couple letters that are missing here and there. I mean, here's, here's the Old Testament. Uh, this is the Isaiah scroll. I mean, if you, if you have bad handwriting, think about that. Look at that. You couldn't copy one line without messing up. But they meticulously worked hard and hours and hours. And yes, they made some mistakes here and there, and I'll explain why. But it was unbelievable what they were allowed to do. And, and the art, by the way, of doing this is called textual criticism. It's done by very, very smart men and women who dress like it's the 70s and, they, and they're just very quirky because it's a very specific science. They study languages like Syriac and Aramaic and all the, they're very intelligent, but this is what they do for a living. They look at old manuscripts and they, they find these variants and they tell you what the original is. And praise God they did. Guys like Bruce Metzger, uh, who, who was a huge theologian in the last century, who did so much work for this. Um, but th this, is, this, is, this is why there's variants. Let me give you some examples. Again, remember, we looked at this before, but this is the, the little one on the left there. It's called a yod. That's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a comma. Uh, you could easily miss this letter. It could drop out. It could fade. On the, on the right there, that, those two letters are different. One, in the, one is a daylight. That's a D. One in the, oh, there's a resh. That's an R. Can you see the little difference there? Can you, can you imagine, again, late at night, flicker of a candle, that once in a while you might make a D and R. And if you made a D and R, that's a variant, right? It may not make sense, but that, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. No doctrine has changed in the Bible. The virgin birth is still there. The deity of Christ is still there. The gospel is still there. The return of Christ is still there. All of it's still there. This spelling errors, little things here and there. Let me give you some examples, okay? There's two types of variants that we have, two types of, of things that happen. One is unintentional oops moments. Oops, right? A mistaken letter, like a resh or a dalet, right? Uh, sometimes we have an omission of a letter, Right? Maybe the last letter you copied was a W and you write a W down here and you go back here and there was a W like four letters later and you picked up there and you missed three letters. And the word doesn't make sense, text, but the text critics say, oh, we can see that. He missed three letters. It it's just happens all the time. Sometimes it's something called a homophony. right? And so one of the ways that they would copy the scripture is a scribe would stand up front and he would read a line of scripture and five guys out there would all have copies and they would, they would copy it down. For God so loved the world, I got it, that he gave his only begotten son. And they'd be copying it. But sometimes a Greek word sounds the same even though it's a different Greek word. Let me give you an example. This is a perfect example. So Romans 5 says, since we have been justified, since we have been justified by faith, right? This, this is, if you look in your Bible, Romans 5, 1, there's a little one and some of us say, some of your translations say, let us have faith. Or let us, uh, since we have been, or let us be justified. So here's what happened there. Okay, so 
again, I did this for first service. Clint could like look at this straight up, but I have the reach. Okay, so, so some of you were like frat boys, right? So you know Greek letters. Okay, so the, fir- the top letter, the top word is echomen. The bottom word is echomen. The top, see that little, that's an O, all right? Omicron, some of you are like, yeah, sing up. All right, this is an omega, all right? Okay, they sound the same, but they mean completely different. Echomen, the top means we have. Echomen, the bottom means let us have. And so this guy's reading, echomen. This guy writes, let us have. This guy writes, we have. There's a variant. That's how it happens, okay? So I, I, I want you to see that firsthand so you know it's not like, Jesus is not really God. That's not there. It's just that kind of stuff. Okay, here's another one. Here's a perfect example as this happens. All right, what does this say? Ha ha ha. Two different answers. All the atheists in the room just said, God is nowhere. (laughs) And all the Christians said, God is now here. Remember, and and the scripture, when they're copying it, there's no spaces in the old ones. But then they're trying to space it. Here's a perfect example. This happens in Mark chapter 10. Okay. Top word. Allah, but, ois, whom? But for whom? Bottom word. Alois, for others. Two different words. Notice if you, squ- see the top, I need Clint up on stage. Clint, can you go up here? If you take the top one and you go this way and you squeeze it together, they're the same word. But see, there's a difference in meaning. And so thus you have a variant right? Not huge. It's easy for the text critic to spot it, but that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, all right? Sometimes we have a reverse word order. That's a very common one. Sometimes there's one, I, I can't even pronounce the word, but this is what happens. You have a word with a similar ending. This is a perfect example. If you have a Bible, real quick, turn to Matthew 12. If you have an app, this is interesting. If you have the ESV app, type in Matthew 12, 47. If you have the, some of you are using the map. See, here's what happens. If you have the ESV app and you type in Matthew 12, 47, what happened? Nothing, because there is no Matthew 12, 47 in your ESV app. And some of you caught this when we worked through Matthew 12, you're like, why is there no 47? I'm like, wait a few weeks, okay? Because it goes right from 46 to 48. You're like, that was an editor error. It's not. Now, if you have the NIV, the New American Standard, some of the others, they have a verse 47, right? So here's what happened. The last word of verse 46 is lalesai. The last verse, word of verse 47 is lalesai. So what this guy did, whoever he was, he's, he's copying. He writes lalesai, and he writes it down here. Then he jumps back here, and because lalesai is the same word at the end of verse 47, he jumps to the end of verse 47, and he starts copying verse 48. He left out a whole verse. He left out a whole verse because he just skipped back to the next word. And so your editors and the ESV decided that that was not original, but some others did. It doesn't change anything because all it says is Jesus' mothers and brothers were asking about him, but that's how you get a variant. Does that make make sense to you? Okay, you can understand if you're like going back and forth to letters. That's what happens, okay? So that's unintentional errors. Sometimes there was intentional errors. Uh, Sometimes you were updating, they would update history, For instance, if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, how many planets in our solar system? All right, what happened? We lost Pluto. We lost Pluto. Pluto is no longer a planet. Okay, so if you're updating a science book, what's gonna happen? You're gonna change it from nine planets to what? Eight. Sometimes in the Old Testament, New Testament, they'll they'll change the name of a city because the city has changed its name, just like we do now. Where's uh, Bombay? There is no Bombay, it's Mumbai. Change his name. 
right? Your map's got to get changed. And so they would update the language because it was 100 years later or 300 years. Oh, there's no more of this, there's that. Sometimes we see variants intentionally because of that. Sometimes there's a, what we call harmonization where a scribe would intentionally change the text because he knows another verse that's similar. Perfect example, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. So Colossians 1 says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians, which is written, by the way, at the same time to a different group of people, says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All right, so this, this scribe who's, transri- who's transcribing Colossians knows the Ephesians verse. So there's some variants that have, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. But the, most translations leave that out because it's clear that this guy was just copying Ephesians and said, oh, it's, he need to add that phrase. So he intentionally adds that and everything that gets copied afterwards adds it. All right, sometimes they did it for theological reasons. Here's a classic example. King James of 1 John 5 says, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Very Trinitarian, awesome. But most original and older manuscripts just say there are three that testify. So what happened there? Well, this guy was probably writing in the third or fourth century when the Trinity was under attack, right? By Arius and all these other guys. And so he's looking for an opportunity to another one to affirm the Trinity. We didn't need one. We had Matthew 28, we had 2 Corinthians, we had all sorts of verses, but he's looking for another opportunity. So he says, there's three that bear record. Which three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, boom. And then every one of the translations that came after added that verse. So that was an intentional change. And then the last one would be, there's liturgical editions. Sometimes the guy, like you, you write in your Bible, amen, praise God, hallelujah. And so if someone would write that in the manuscript and the next guy to come along would be like, do I copy amen? I guess I copy amen, that's part of it. And they copy amen. And then the next, trans, next guy's writing amen, next guy might add a hallelujah. And now you have amen, hallelujah. And the biggest example of this is the Lord's Prayer. All right, you know the Lord's Prayer? Let's say it. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and deliver us not from evil. Uh, see, you, you're, now you're started. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. It's not in the original. It was added. Why? Because probably third, fourth century, this was part of their liturgy. Someone added it to one of the manuscripts and the guys afterwards. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's untrue, but it was not part of the original prayer. It was ended with, he already did the yours is the kingdom up front. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But it was a liturgical addition to the end. Doesn't mean you shouldn't recite it. I'm not saying that. But just, that's how, I'm just trying to explain to you how it happens. And there's more and more and more. If you want to really deep dive, and there's like three of you in the room that do, okay. Read anything by Bruce Metzger. Because he is like the, the foremost, or he was the foremost scholar on this stuff. But I'm, I'm saying all this just to let you know that, that smart, spirit-filled men and women do great work and you can trust the words you have. It's evident that 99% of these are easy to spot and the rest of the 1% are a little bit more challenging, but it's still easy to spot. Because in the end, God desires his people to know himself. And here's what's really cool. Okay, up until the 40s, the, the, the earliest manuscript we had of the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the earliest manuscript we had was, was dated 900 AD. That's 1,500 years from Malachi. That's a lot of time, a lot of time. But something awesome happened in the 40s. A little shepherd boy throws his rock into a cave. He hears, 
he goes up and he finds these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they open these things up and you have all these scrolls of the Old Testament. And they opened up the scrolls that were dated to three century BC. And they compared it to the one that was 900 AD. And guess what? They were exact. Because God preserved his word over this 1500 years because he wants you and I to know him. And that's huge because the... the the text credit looks for the earliest manuscripts. That's usually the best thing, the closer to the original. And when it comes to like Homer, there's 500 years between Homer's earliest manuscript and when it's written. When it comes to Plato, there's 1,500 years between when it was written and the earliest manuscript. When it comes to scripture, we have manuscripts from the first century, less than 50 years, right? In fact, I showed you this one earlier. This is the 10 commandments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, you can see it. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. See that? All right, there you go. This is P46, the Chester Beatty uh, papyri, dated in the third, second century. This has all the Pauline corpus, all of Paul's letters in Hebrews with a few pieces missing. Already less than 300 years from when he wrote it. This one is probably one of the most significant. They found this in, in Mount Sinai's uh, monastery. It's the entire Greek Old Testament and New Testament with a few leaves missing because again, it's 15, 1700 years old. It has the entire Bible, Right? And it's only, it's less than 250 years from the original, right? God has preserved his word for us. Not to mention the church fathers and all these commentaries from their first centuries, thousands and thousands and millions of quotations from the Bible. We know what we have is true. And back to the whole point, back to the whole point. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know the why behind the what, and he wants you to renew your mind with scripture. That's the point. And so we go back to where we started. All scripture, the 66 books, which have been accurately translated in your Bible, is from God. It is sourced in God. Thus, it is true and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete. And if you look at the original text, that word complete is put way up front for emphasis. He wants you to see complete, mature, perfect. How does mature, perfect come? Through the scripture through renewing your mind. It is profitable to teach you, to correct you, to reprove you, to encourage you, to train you so that you can be equipped for good works because you are not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. And he gave you this to do it, right? And so back to what we talked about three weeks ago, are you renewing your mind with it? Are you meditating on it? Are you memorizing it? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? And if you're like, I don't know how to study the Bible, come next week with a notebook and a pen and we will talk about it. But here, I heard a sermon this week from a Messianic Jew and, and he reminded me and I was like, okay, I'm gonna remind our people. This is a battle, folks. You are in a war, you are in a spiritual battle and you cannot fight a spiritual battle with anything but spiritual weapons, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and prayer, period, end of story. That is the only weapons that you have and they are mighty weapons, but it's all you got. Not your wit, not your intellect, the spirit of God in prayer and the spirit of God in his word. End of story. And so if you're not fighting with this, you're not fighting. So here's my encouragement to you. Okay, we got seven days till next Sunday, six days until the Sunday. There's three books of the Bible in the New Testament that have six chapters. Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy. Pick one, pick one. I don't care, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy. And read one chapter every day, just one. Take you three and a half, four minutes. Read it twice, read it three times. Think about it, take notes. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? Just spend that time. Will you, I know you have time. 
I know you have six, 10, 15 minutes. Open your word, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, one of the three. Read one chapter and start renewing your mind so that you only know what the word of God is, what is his will of God, that which is pleasing, acceptable, and perfect. And if we will do that, if we will be people of the word, look, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. Common saying, but it's true. And so God wants us to be transformed. He's given us his word to do so. Let's do it. All right, let me pray. I know it's a little bit different. I know like three engineers in a room are like, woohoo, and all the rest of us are like, oh. But hey, sometimes we gotta get in the meatier stuff. And so I appreciate you listening. Let me pray. Father, thank you for you preserving the word for us that we may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And if nothing else, may people in this room have confidence that the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That, that's, that's the confidence we want, that what you said is true, that Christ really did come, that he really did live, that he really did die and he really did rise again and that he really will come again. And he really will never leave us, forsake us. And then there is nothing that truly can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that all these things are true because they're sourced in you. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our savior. Amen. You guys can stand as we sing.